Thank you, Andy, and uh, thank you for inviting me to come and speak to you today. Esther, my wife, who I think you've heard previously on a few occasions, sends her love. She especially said, make sure you say that, so I <laughs> discharge my duty. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's great to hear about the fate. I was really encouraged by that. That's, it's great to be out in the community and to, and to kind of make people aware and, and to put a face to, to the church as well. I think it's, it's really important. It's great that you've done that. Um, if you've got a Bible, please turn to the passage um, that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at um, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Um, as you look for it, it's, a, it's one of the minor prophets. Um, now, minor doesn't mean that it's less important just means that it's shorter. Uh, and I think it's probably De Vere's Diamonds invented the uh, phrase that the best things come in small packages. Um, but uh, yeah, it, they're, they're not less important, they're just uh, shorter. But this, it, it, Micah has a really important message uh, to give. Um, <clears throat> has anybody seen the film uh, 12 Angry Men? Yeah, there, there you go. Black and white film. I think it's the best black and white film I've ever seen. Um, 8.9 on IMDb, <clears throat> for those of you who that means anything to. Um, but basically, it's set in a courtroom. It's a, it's a courtroom drama. And, uh, and most of it is set in the jury discussion room. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, well, I won't spoil it for you because I've whet your appetite. You're all going to go and uh, look for it on, IMD, on um, Netflix now, aren't you? But this passage here is really, it's a courtroom drama. And the people of God are in the dock. And the judge and the prosecutor are God. And the barrister presenting the case is Micah. So let's listen to what Micah says to start off with. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Listen to what the Lord says. Now, friends, there might be many reasons why we've come this morning. Uh, many different reasons. You, you, you might be visiting, in which case you're really welcome. It's good to have you with us. It might be just something that you do on a Sunday morning. It's a good habit to get into. You might be coming because you see your friends and it's, it's good to see others, a, a nice friendly face. It's good to be together. But I want you to ask yourself the question this morning, am I willing to listen to what the Lord says? Do I expect God to speak to me this morning? Do you know, I started um, taking a notebook around with me. I got it free from a conference that I went to, and I started writing down when, uh, when something really strikes me, when God lays something on my heart, uh, and I want to try and remember it and look back upon it. It's a good thing to do. To, if we expect God to speak, it's a good thing, what well, certainly I find it helpful, to have something to write it down on. My wife always writes it on every little scrap of paper. I'm a, I like to be a little bit more organised than that. But 
don't tell her I've told you. Um, so it's good to ask ourselves, are we willing to listen to what God says to us this morning? So I want to lay out who's speaking at these different points, because if you read it just straight down, it can seem a bit of a jumble. There's sort of things coming from different angles. So who's speaking? Well, verse 1 is kind of organizing the courtroom, if you like. Um, stand up, he says. So God's saying stand up to... I'm not saying stand up. Remain seated. Um, God's saying stand up. You're going to have to answer for something. He's addressing the people, God's people. And he's putting accusations. And God's people, as I said, are in the dock. Um, and he calls the mountains. He calls the mountains and the hills to bear testimony. Now, there's a, there's a couple of views on what the mountains and hills are. The mountains and the hills obviously been there from generation to generation to generation. And they have seen, as it were, um, they've been witnesses to what God has, how God has treated his people. Um, another interpretation of that might be, and, and we find it in other sections of the Bible, where the mountains and the hills are referring to other nations around. Big nations, mountains, little nations, hills. Um, but it's calling witnesses, those who are outside of the situation, to see what has gone on and to bear witness. And verse 2, God then brings his case about, uh, against his people. He lodges his charge. So it's God versus the people of God. Now, I know there's, there's one translation of the Bible um, that I found that... Um, it, you know, quite often there's titles in the, uh, in, in the NIV, isn't there? As you go through passages, there's often a title. I mean, th this one's the Lord's case against Israel in the NIV. Um, that's not God's word. It's just a title that, you know, people have, have put in there in order to help us to find things. Um, but it, they're not actual words of scripture. And it's interesting, I found this Bible, and, and going through the Old Testament, I noticed that it was, um, whenever it was a negative passage in the Old Testament, it was God's judgment on Israel, or God holds Israel to account, or, uh, uh, and these sorts of things. And, it, and whenever it was something encouraging, it was um, God's blessings on the church, and uh, God's guidance for the church. And I thought, well, actually there's a danger here that we listen to all the positive things that the Bible has to say and sometimes we're not willing to listen to the challenges that God's word has to say to us. When you have to look at Revelation 2 and 3 and see what God says to the churches, to see his standards in the church. God's heart is to purify us as a holy people. I heard recently a story told by, um, ironically, Elizabeth Goldsmith, who went to see a goldsmith. And um, the goldsmith was heating the gold. And uh, every time he heated the gold, he would draw off the dross 
um, the, the kind of impurities that would rise to the surface. And he would draw it off. Uh, and then he would let it cool, and then he would heat it again, and then he would draw off the dross again, and then he would heat it again. And, and Elizabeth went and asked him, he said, well, how long, how, how long are you going to carry on doing this? Because it seemed to be taking forever. And he said, you know, I carry on doing it until I can see my face in it. God often heats us through maybe sufferings, through difficulties, through the challenges of his word. Because he wants to scrape off the dross. Because he wants to get rid of the things that obstruct his view of himself in you. God wants to see his own reflection in you. He wants to purify us. So in our passage, what's the accusation? What's the accusation? Uh, just notice before we look at that, the compassion. This isn't a cold-hearted God speaking from up there, just waiting to smite you with some bolt of lightning as soon as you put a foot wrong. No, he starts with my people. There's real ownership there. There's real compassion. This is not an accusation from a distant God. Oh, my people, he cries. This is a God bearing his heart in the public courtroom. This is a, this is a God who cries, oh, my people, to us, his church. Oh, my people. He cries. And then he says, so wh what have I done to you? What have I, how have I burdened you? Uh, and in this we need to kind of uh, do a bit of mirror thinking. We need to think, what, what is it that, that they have done? What is it that they have been saying? Well, the implication here is that they've been complaining that God has burdened them that their religion had become a chore. It had become drudgery. It had become joyless, loveless, not a relationship at all. And how had this happened? Well, Micah goes into that in, in uh, other places in, in the book of Micah. Micah 2, verses 1 to 2, the, the women and the children were being oppressed. 2 verse 9, the, the rulers were taking bribes. Uh, and then in chapter 3 and chapter 7, the wealthy got, got rich dishonestly. Uh, and generally, commerce was corrupt. People weren't dealing fairly with each other. God's emphasis was on social responsibility, on justice and honesty and fairness towards, uh, and a bias towards the poor. A friend of mine was leading a Bible study group the other evening. And uh, we were looking at, and, and something really struck me uh, very powerfully. We were looking at Psalm 119, which is a long old psalm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a long psalm. It's a really good psalm. But the strange thing about it that struck me was that this guy, the writer of the psalm, was absolutely in love with the rule book. 
think this is so weird. This guy is in love with God's rules. What is going on? What's, what is it in his mind that makes him think that a rule book is such a great thing to have? A set of do's and don'ts. He loves God's law. It's just amazing. But that's because God's law is so much more than that. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Without God's law, life doesn't make sense. It's like, uh, it's like we've been given a jigsaw puzzle and uh, we've also been given the lid, which has the picture on it. And we can see where the place, where the where the things go. Okay, sometimes it's difficult to see where that bit of sky fits, um, which is always a bugbear of mine when I'm doing jigsaw puzzles. But it's sometimes it's difficult to see how the pieces fit together. But we know that there's a big picture. We know that God has a big picture. We know that things will eventually make sense because God is bringing things together for His purposes. God's law gives us a future and a hope. It's a fixed point of reference that gives us security. Do you know, I was uh, talking to a colleague this week and he was uh, telling me about, there's a program on telly about the world's strictest head mistress. Had anybody seen it? No, okay. Um, uh, well, but apparently there's a big old waiting list for this school um, because the rule of law is set down and the kids feel secure in that. There's a security in knowing that we have boundaries. You know, the world is constantly changing opinion, isn't it? You, you talk to somebody uh, or, or, or transport yourself to, to, to sort of maybe 70 or 80 years ago and to the opinions that there are just about marriage, for example, nowadays. And you see how the world's view is changing and kind of melding and, and moving around, but God's law is still the same. It doesn't change. There's a real security in knowing God's boundaries. But in this context, in the context of our passage, they had found the law burdensome. Yes, it is burdensome if we fight against it. If we pursue dishonest gain, if we're greedy for money, if we ignore the poor and the needy and live selfishly, yes, God's law will be burdensome. God is pleading his case against Israel and maybe against, maybe against me, maybe against you. He says, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've given you. Verse 4, he, he's, he recounts some of the things that he's done for them. Led them out of slavery. He's brought us out of slavery to sin we've trusted in Christ I led you with good and godly men and women how we are blessed with godly leaders 
And then this account of Balak and Balaam, just to give you a little background here as a sort of side note, Balak was seriously worried when he saw uh, two million Israelites walking across his land and he uh, thought he would pay Balaam a prophet to, uh, to go and curse Israel. Um, this is the story of the talking donkey. It's not just in Shrek, but it is in the Bible. And Balaam can't do it. Because every time he tries to curse Israel, he comes out with a blessing. God turns curses into blessings for his people. Um, and Shittim, uh, in verse 5, it was a place where they camped just before crossing the Jordan. Uh, and, and Gilgal was the first place that they camped, having just entered the Promised Land, just outside Jericho. So it's a kind of shorthand for the miraculous entry um, into the Promised Land. God parted the waters on the Jordan and they crossed over in dry, on dry land. So God is recounting all the blessings that he has given to Israel over the years. And he says, and you find my law a burden? It's like God going through the family album and going, yeah, I, and that was me. Yep, yeah, and that was me there. You didn't see me there, but I was there protecting you. Yep, yep, that was me. That was me there in the, uh, yep. Again, you, you didn't see me, but I was guiding you here this morning. I love, I love communion because I, I figure it's God's favorite page in the, in the family album. When he turns it and he goes, look, that, that was me. I did that for you. I reckon that's his favorite page. And why did he do all these things for Israel? Well, it tells us at the end of verse 5 that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So that we can see that God is entirely faithful and can be completely trusted. That he is entirely faithful and can be completely trusted. Uh, Amy G. Ogden puts it like this. These brief two verses serve to remind the people who this God is. This is the God who hears the cries of the people and brings them out of slavery. This is the God who will use even the outsider to bring blessings. This is the God who shows compassion and mercy when the people fall. Even the people's idolatry and injustice cannot prevent God from acting this way. This is the God who is faithful no matter what. And the entire creation stands witness to this. But they had committed the sin of forgetting all that God had done for them. And calling it a burden. God had lifted them out of slavery. But it was a burden to follow him. 
Our God is faithful, isn't he? He's constantly taking the initiative. Um, and we need to set up stones just to say, this far the Lord has helped us. Remembering how God has helped us in the past and saying, yes, God has been faithful in the past, so I trust him for the future. I stand on his promises. So how do the people answer in verses 6 and 7? How do, how do the people answer? What response are they going to give to um, God's uh, accusations? In verses 6 and 7, it sounds, this is when the people respond. Um, it sounds like they're almost being sarcastic. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I bring my firstborn? This is the people's response. It's almost crass, isn't it, what they're saying? They're going to try and buy God off. They think somehow that the relationship can be mended by payment. They think somehow that some extreme sacrifice, some amazing offering um, would, would set God aright. They're thinking of God like the nations around thought of their gods. That somehow they could buy God's favour. What God wanted and what God wants is a heart of love for him. A heart of love for him. Only sacrifices brought out of a heart of love for God are the things that God desires. Do you know, it's almost like they're saying, oh, you know, a a thousand bunches of flowers or a florist full of flowers or, 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 or 10,000 boxes of chocolates. You know, how can we get God's favor? Um, they even suggest, as, as the pagan worshippers uh, ha had been doing, sacrificing their children. But hang on a minute. Didn't God in the Old Testament ask them to bring sacrifices? Didn't he ask them to, to do these things, these acts of, uh, uh, of sacrifice? But what God says is these things are no good if our heart is not right before him. If we are just going through the motions, if it's not an expression of our heart, then the sacrifices aren't what God requires. They're not what God desires. Do you know, um, it, it says it, in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this, Jesus says, is the greatest commandment. It's the heart. It's not outward uh, 
ceremonies. It's what's going on in our hearts. The need to re- for a relationship needed to be mended and no amount of good works or sacrificial service was going to do that. They had to come back to God. A skeleton is not a thing of beauty. It's essential, but it's not a thing of beauty on its own. You need flesh and blood and life. And the law on its own is not necessarily a thing of beauty, but when it's combined with life, with a living relationship, it becomes an essential part of our relationship with God. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And how do we know that their hearts were far from God? We just just need to look at their lives. We, we need to look at what they did in the week and not on the Sabbath when they, when they came to, uh, to their church. Because a symptom of a changed heart is a changed life. The symptoms of a heart in love with God is wanting to please him all the time, not just on Sundays or, or even when people are looking. Do you know, I came to a point recently um, where, where my walk with God had become a burden. I was very, very busy in the church. We were in a very small church. And I, it, I was an elder and it, I was very, very busy. And, and Esther, my wife, was very busy. We're busy people. We're busybody. No, no. We're very busy people. And, and, and it seemed that I was doing an awful lot for the church, but the more I did, the more... And I thought that by doing all these things, by being really busy, by making sure I was at every meeting that I could be, by organising stuff and doing, doing all that I could, I thought by doing that that I was showing my love to God. But my heart had become cold. <coughs> And gradually, God had to strip all those things away. One by one, he took them away. And why was that? Because he wanted me back. Because he wanted me back. God wants you back. God wants you back. Be busy in the church. Be committed. Great. But make sure your heart's right. Because the things that you do will be of no avail unless your heart is right with God. He wants you back. He says to you, won't you come home? God loves you. God loves you and he wants you back. Do you remember Martha rushing around uh, and Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about and upset about many things, but 
Only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen what is best. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you love me, you will obey my commands. What's coming first? It's the love. The love, and you will obey my commands. It's a natural outflowing. If you love me, you will obey my commands. As it says in John 14, verse 15. The people of Israel had forgotten. They were just going through the motions of religion. Uh, And the rest of their lives, the rest of the week, revealed what their hearts were really like. So what does God require of us? What does God want of us? To act justly, that's to be fair and honest, to account for our taxes, (laughs) to fill in our, our, our expense forms diligently and correctly, uh, not to, uh, to gossip, not to uh, do people down. Um, to help justice be done locally and, and nationally. The implication here is, is asserting the rights of others over our own rights. That's the, that's the implication. Uh, here's a verse that sums it up. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. I've tried learning that. But I tell you, the more you meditate on that, the more challenging it becomes. And then to love mercy. And, and again, I've been, as I've spent time in God's word, he deals with our hearts and I can just see myself not loving mercy in different situations. Somebody who used our, uh, was parking wrongly in the, in the car park at, at work and I went round to them and said, you know, you, you know, you, we've got an elderly client coming in and they can't get into the space. And I could have said, well, you could use one of ours. But I didn't. And the law convicted me and said, have you really, have you loved mercy? Do you love mercy? Is that something you really love? These are hard things, aren't they? Not just to be merciful, but to love mercy. Um, Mike Pilavachi says, I I, I want a church that is full of mercy because I'm going to need that mercy one day myself. Do you know, there's one person who, who managed to keep the highest standards of morality and yet loved everyone who fell short of it. And that was Jesus. That was Jesus. Finally, how are we to do this? It's like, I don't want to have laid a massive burden on you this morning that 
wow, you've got to do these impossible things like love mercy and act justly. How on earth are we going to do this? How can we? The answer is here. To walk humbly with our God. That is the only way that we're going to be able to act justly and love mercy. Here's the secret. Here's the secret. Walking. And the implication here is 24-7. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a 24-7. Every day of the week, every waking moment to walk, walk, walk humbly with our God. To put our footsteps in his footsteps. To walk with him at home, school, shopping. When dealing with parking spaces, whatever it is, to walk humbly with our God. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're wondering how to access this, how am I going to approach God? I would say there's the secret. Humbly. The only way we can come to God really is humbly. It says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So that is the only way that we can walk with God, is humbly. And here's a wonderful note to end on. God wants to walk with you. He wants to walk with you. He didn't give you a rule book and go, off you go, there's the rules, put it all into practice. He said, come, follow me. Come, follow me. We are walking with Jesus along the Christian life. Come, follow me, he says. Or he, he did say go once, go into all the world. But then the very next verse, what did he say? And I will be with you even till the ends of the earth. God wants to walk with you along life's way. If you forget everything else this morning, just remember that. God wants to walk with you. He eagerly desires a heart relationship with you. He wants to chat with you along life's way. God wants to walk with you. May we walk with him as we try and put these things into practice to love mercy and to act justly. Amen. Amen.